The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning, church. Good to see all of you this morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the elders. I, too, am one of the elders here. Uh, our lead pastor, Brian, is, um, well, he was here earlier, so you may have seen him, but uh, uh, every now and then we like to give him a week off from preaching and uh, just to give him some rest and rejuvenation. Uh, he will be back in the saddle here in two weeks because next week uh, we have the churchwide campout, and so um, if you're you're going to go to that, you can go to that. We'll talk about that a little bit more. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 4. As uh, Ryan said, we've been in this series on the book of Acts. We are examining when God's power is unleashed through his people. So we sometimes call it the Acts of the Apostles, but... um, uh, Really, with the people as well, things are happening, and uh, God works through that. So we'll be in Acts chapter 4 today, starting in verse 23. This is continuing the story that began all the way back in in the beginning of chapter 3. Yeah, we're in the same story. It's proceeding at about the pace of a Netflix binge watch. You know, it's like we're still in this story. But we're going to wrap it up today and, uh, and, and see just how this, this part of the narrative ends. Two weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of this, where Peter and John were going to the temple, and they encountered a, a man who had been lame since birth. And I don't mean like, oh, that dude's really lame. I mean, he was literally lame. And through the power of Jesus Christ, and in the name of Jesus Christ, the man was healed, and it was obvious to the people who had seen this man uh, day in and day out at the gates of the temple, uh, because he wasn't just hobbling along now walking with a cane or, or a walker or something like that. He was walking and leaping and praising God. It was obvious that God had done a work in this man. And so in, in the first week that we looked at that, Peter then spoke to the people who were present at that day and told them what was going on and and how it had happened, that it was in the name of Jesus Christ that this man was healed. And through Jesus, you may have your sins forgiven and you may be saved. And in fact, God added to their number to to where the number of of believers rose to 5,000 men plus the women and children. Then last week, we looked at how the leaders, the the chief priests and the elders of the people came and arrested Peter and John. And they were then held overnight and and, uh, Peter and John then uh, spoke to to the elders. The elders told them, okay, you're not to preach anymore. You're not to teach anymore in this name. And Peter said, you know, you, you decide if we should obey God or should obey you. But as for us, we cannot help but tell of the things that we have seen and heard. 
And so now today, what we're coming up to is, is them returning to their friends. And what would the, what would the mental state of their friends be in this, in this setting? What happened? I don't know. We were all there in the temple, Peter and John, just like normal. He was speaking, and then all of a sudden they were arrested. Well, are they okay? What should we do now? Are we able to speak? What, what's going on? It's into that setting of uncertainty that we, that we have our text. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 4, and we will start in verse 23, read through uh, verse 31. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, it will be on the screen. It's also on our uh, info uh, hub at mdc.org under the tab today. <clears throat> Starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come before your word, may we come with submissive hearts. May you give us ears to hear. May you open our ears that we may hear. And even today, Lord, as we speak your gospel, as we speak the good news of Jesus Christ, may you bring people to yourself. May you draw your, your sons and daughters closer to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. And everybody said, Amen. In the Peanuts comic strip, some of you may remember Peanuts, Linus and Lucy, the brother and sister, are sitting by the window and just watching it pour rain outside. And it's pouring, and Lucy says, Boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus who's always the calm one, says it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And Lucy says, you've taken a great load off my mind. Linus then replies, sound theology has a way of doing that. 
So as this new church, these new young Christians, it's been smooth sailing for them so far in the book of Acts. They have seen favor with all the people. They've seen signs and wonders being performed. There's a there's a, a great devotion to the Word of God and to the apostles' teaching. There are great displays of, of selfless generosity. And, and then there's also massive growth. God is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. And into this smooth sailing, suddenly there is the first sign of trouble. There's actual arrests. Peter and John have been arrested. And they're held overnight. And sound theology is going to have a way to settle their minds. And we will see that today as the text goes on. So now, Peter and John return and report what's going on. Verse 23 says, When they were released, they they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So, Peter and John come back and they say, look, they told us not to preach anymore, but we said we can't help but tell what we've seen. So we're going to continue to obey God. We're going to continue to do what he had said we should do, and that is be his witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the the earth. So what's the first thing that this new church does? They pray. They pray. They don't have a party. They don't have a potluck. There's no prating about what went on. They don't have a big planning session. They pray. And I think there's maybe even a little bit of a rebuke there for us, because what would we do if this had happened to us here in the 21st century? We might have a party. We might, you know, just do all sorts of things. They prayed. And what a prayer it is. And as we look at this prayer today, I think what we will find is a model for us to pray and to pray within the context of of opposition and affliction that we may face as believers. So for those of you who are note takers, there are three uh, characteristics in this prayer. Uh, The first one is that this prayer invokes God's attributes. It invokes God's attributes or his character. Uh, Verse 24 says, When they heard it, when they heard the report, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. So the first part of their prayer is that they are invoking God. They They are calling upon God, and it's instructive as to how they how they address God. They call him Sovereign Lord. Now, this is an interesting term. Uh, It's not the typical term uh, for Lord that we often see in the New Testament, but rather this this comes from the the Greek word despotes. And you can see, you can kind of hear in there 
the, the roots of our word despot. So we think of a, a, a despot as someone who is a, a, a very authoritative and authoritarian ruler. Um, and oftentimes with a despot, there is, there is a negative connotation there that, that we say he's very despotic and, uh, you know, very heavy-handed. But at the, at the root of this word is the idea of being a lord or master or owner. And so without the negative connotations, they refer to God as sovereign lord, as despotes. And it was often used uh, even in a, in a household as, as the master of the household. So they are addressing God as the sovereign master of the household, the one who has absolute and unrestricted authority. And that is who they are coming to. They are coming to a high view of God. He's the ruler. He's the master of the household. And he is this by right of creation. Because it goes on to describe him as the one who made the heavens and the, the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So he's the creator and thus the master and the sovereign over his creation. He has the right of it, like the potter has over the clay. The potter making a pot however he or she wants because he or she is the creator of the pot. That's God. He is the potter over the clay. They testify further to this, um, to his sovereign rule. If you look down in uh, verse 28, uh, he talks about the people gathered together, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is a sovereign God that they invoke. And everything that they talk about here as far as what happened with Jesus in Jerusalem, not, not too many days, not too many weeks earlier, many of the people would have been around and would have known this and known these things that happened. These are things that happened because God had predestined them to take place. Now for the people in, in the in the book of Acts, we see several times where this idea of God's plan and God doing what God wanted to do, things he had already planned, we see this uh, show up several times. So just back uh, uh, one page in chapter 2, as Peter is speaking, in verse 23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter in that, in that sermon was saying, look, you evil people did evil by the predetermined plan of God. Now, I don't know how to marry those two concepts, so I don't try. But this is something that... that the early church was embraced, and, and even if there's tension there intellectually in our minds, the words speak of a mystery, but words couldn't be plainer. 
that God had predestined things because he's the sovereign God. He's the master over the household. He's the master over his creation. Now, this was not a fatalism. Sometimes we might be led to believe, you know, okay, well, if God has planned everything, then I guess it's not up to us. And, and I've even heard people say, well, if, if God is sovereign, why should I pray? And to that, I would say, if God is not sovereign, why would you pray? Why would you go to God and say, Lord, I want you to do something. I want you to take this this person I love who doesn't know you, and I want you to save them. Why would you pray that unless God were sovereign? Lord, I want you to, to take this child of mine who is sick, and I want you to heal them. Why would you pray that unless God was sovereign? This is who we go to when we pray. We count on his might and his sovereignty when we pray. So as we come to him, we need to invoke his attributes. And and sometimes I think when we pray, we act as if we we are not really approaching the sovereign almighty God. We fret as if he's not God. We get all worried and, and, and stirred up inside and, Lord, what do we do? And I don't know what I'm going to do here. And God is saying, I'm God. And we need to rest in that. Even in lament, even as we pour out our grief to God and our, and our complaint to God, we do so in a in a posture of trust, in a posture of, of, Lord, you are the sovereign God over all. May your will be done. So the first thing we see is that this prayer is based, uh, it's a prayer that invokes God's attributes. The second thing about this prayer is that it is based in biblical understanding. So verse 25 says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're quoting Psalm 2 here. And so right away, this prayer has a biblical bent to it. I think one of the best things we can do when we pray is use the Bible. Let the Bible speak. Let the words of God form the words of our prayer. Um, that's That's a great discipline to develop. But it's beyond just using the words of the Bible. It's the understanding of what the Bible is teaching. And what's it teaching here? Well, let's go back uh, to Psalm 2, if you would turn there. Um, and it will also be on the screen. Psalm 2 starts, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, that's exactly what uh, Peter quoted, or, or the, whoever's praying, quoted in Acts chapter 2. They take their uh, counsel against the Lord and his anointed, saying... 
Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is a prayer of independence. This is, this is like, I don't need God. And I'm just going to cast it away. Now, initially, this psalm is speaking about King David. Okay? Uh, it's David's psalm, uh, but he's writing uh, about himself. And um, he's saying that, that, that these rulers, the kings of the earth, are taking a stand against, against God and against his anointed king, which is himself, David. So if you read uh, the story of David, you know that he had a lot of enemies. He had, he had many usurpers to the throne over the course of his reign. Uh, he had all of this, but he was the anointed of God. God came to David and said, I will establish your throne. It will be a throne forever. And your seed will sit on your throne. Now, in Acts, the apostles understood this psalm referring to David as ultimately referring to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that Davidic promise that I will put a king on the throne of David forever. And the fulfillment of that is Jesus Christ. So, it's interesting, you go on in, in Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify, terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God says, God laughs at, at kings and princes, and he says, he says, I've set my king on Zion in Jerusalem. And he now says to, to those who would come in opposition to God and to Jesus Christ, I've set my king on his throne. But the king is Jesus. So <clears throat> these believers understood the biblical understanding that the world is against the things of God. The world stands in opposition to God. And Jesus would have taught that and did teach that throughout his ministry with his 12 disciples. So for instance, Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, that idea of taking up your cross ought to be clear that you may be giving up your life. The cross meant death. You die to self and possibly even die literally under the following of Jesus Christ. John 16, says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. John 15, 18 if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then in the, as, as part of the Beatitudes in, Ma in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus would have laid a foundation with his disciples, and then the disciples, as they are teaching, as they are teaching the faith to the new believers, and the believers are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, they all would have had this sense, this biblical understanding that God and the world are in opposition to one another, and we will face persecution and opposition. So when they pray, they are praying with this biblical understanding. Now in verse 27, they go further here. They say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They understood, and we understand, that it was actually opposition that created salvation for us. It was the opposition to Jesus Christ. He was despised and rejected, and he was hated, and he was crucified eventually, all for the payment of our sins. And it was through that act planned for by God from the foundation of the world that, that God would save sinners. That at the name of the beaten, mocked, shamed, and crucified Jesus, sins would be paid for and a people would be created. People would be saved. In this day and age, and I've, I've grown up, I've been in the church my entire life, we really in America have it easy. And there's, there are storm clouds on the horizon. Can you sense it? But we've, we've really, when I was a kid, it just seemed like everybody went to church. It seemed like the church was respected. Even if not everybody was actually a Christian, but the church was a respected place and the minister was, was kind of the social center of town in the older days. And for 400 years, we have had a situation where we've, we've come to assume that Christianity ought to be the preferred worldview. We call it Christendom for a reason, because Christianity in, in Western Europe and in, in, uh, in the Americas has been the, has been the dominant religion and dominant worldview. And so we've, we come to believe that we have rights. And if our rights are threatened, then it's our mission to protect those rights. So let's just imagine if, if this had happened, if Peter and John, two of our leaders, were arrested here now in 21st century United States. We might be all up in arms and, and trying to exhaust every legal channel we could find to get them out of jail and to get somebody to say, no, we were wrong to arrest them. They should be, you, you should be free to speak because that's our, that's our right. 
Have we forgotten that our church, the church, was chartered in opposition? Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We will be in conflict. Not only from the gates of hell, but we will take it to the gates of hell. Robert Thune wrote this. Churches in the West are slowly beginning to awaken to the fact that Christendom, that is the cultural predominance of Christianity in the Western world, is dead. As Peter Kreeft puts it, quote, Many Christians act as if we still live in a Christian culture, a Christian civilization, a society that reinforced the gospel. No, the honeymoon is over. But the news has not yet sunk in fully in many quarters, end quote. Thune goes on to write, as leaders wake up to this reality, <clears throat> they are rediscovering the missional paradigm of church leadership, a vision to lead the church as a countercultural missionary entity rather than as a culturally favored institution. Sometimes what we pray for is not very biblical. Now, there's a time and a place for us to stand up as long as we have legal recourse to do so. There, there are times and places to do that. But I want us to understand, brothers and sisters, that we may not have those forever. And Jesus never promised them to us. He never promised us a smooth sailing, non-oppositional culture in which, in which we exist. In fact, the church worldwide thrives under opposition. It becomes soft when we have no opposition. And so, as we see the, the, the time approaching, as we see the time moving on, I think we will see more and more of this opposition. And as we pray... <clears throat> We pray with that biblical mindset in mind that the world will hate us. And that leads us to the third characteristic of this prayer. The prayer is centered on mission. It's a prayer that is centered on mission. Verse 29 and 30. And here's where they make their request. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your <clears throat> holy servant, Jesus. <clears throat> their request is for, for continued boldness and that God would continue to work. Signs, wonders, and things being done. They want God to continue to work miraculously. They are praying with the mission in mind. They're not praying for comfort. They don't pray here, Lord, take these nasty leaders away. You know, make them see the light. Make them... They're praying for continued boldness. 
Now, they're praying for that because, because they need it. They don't, they don't feel boldness right now. They've seen two of their number be arrested. And by the way, spoiler alert, the rest of Acts is going to get worse. Okay? It's not going to get any easier. So they don't feel bold, so they pray for boldness. But they are praying with the mission in mind. Now this raises a question. How do we pray as a church, in our community groups, as families, as, as individuals by ourselves? How do we pray, especially when we are faced with adversity? Sometimes what we pray for is not very missional. Okay, let's take a, a, a case in point. Let's say we're in our community group and somebody, somebody says, um, hey, um, pray for me. I think, I think maybe my job may be outsourced and I may lose my job. Okay, our natural inclination is to pray that this person doesn't lose their job or they find a better job. And, and we're praying very much in the immediate instance. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think our overarching prayer is, Lord, may your will be done. And our overarching prayer ought to be missional in mind. Maybe it's missional. Maybe it furthers the kingdom. It furthers the mission for you to lose that job. How many times has God taken a job away? Uh, it certainly happened in my life. Um, where what came after that was something I never would have done or never would have experienced. And it furthers God's kingdom. Maybe God's purposes are furthered when we don't receive healing. Maybe, perhaps, God's mission is advanced when believers remain in prison. Paul certainly experienced that in, in the book of Philippians. You know, whether I'm here, whether I'm not, whether I'm put to death, it's all about Jesus Christ being exalted in me. <clears throat> Maybe God's glory is displayed when you don't get that upwardly mobile job that you're praying for. Maybe God's plan is is carried out when we are martyred. Pray missionally. Pray with the mission in mind. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with praying for your comfort in that situation, for praying for release, if that's God's will. But it's not just me and my little situation. And I want relief and comfort here. It's what is God doing in the mission. So when you pray, make your prayer about the mission. Now finally, we see in verse 31, the prayer answered. Um, and I don't have a slide for that, but it's the prayer answered. Um, that's my fault. Um, verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
So here's the neat thing. They pray for boldness, and God gives them boldness. Now this is, in, in a sense, kind of a model prayer for us. Okay? It's, it's a great way to pray and to model our prayers. So it first addresses God as Lord and King. We talked about that as, as far as invoking God and His character and His attributes. It expresses confidence in His will and His actions. God, you know what you're doing. It exhibits faith and hope in the current situation. Lord, now we believe that we can have boldness. We believe that you can continue to work miraculously among the people. And then finally, it brings requests to God in, a, in the context of completing his mission. This is a model prayer for us. And what we see as a result of this is God's presence. The place where they were gathered was shaken. Now, this was a unique time. I don't know that we can expect our room to shake, but you know, certainly our souls can shake. Certainly, that God can move in mighty ways. <clears throat> God's presence. Uh, there's God's power. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then God's provision. They continued to speak the word with boldness. So God answered mightily. And when we pray God's will with God's power, we see God's work getting done. I'll say that again. When we pray God's will with God's power, God's work gets done. Now, we will see that in a couple of weeks as, as we read forward, that God is continuing to work. Just take a peek at verse 32, kind of a, a sneak preview here. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said anything. Uh, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So again, the community of believers is not weakened by the opposition, it's rather strengthened by it. And there's more evidence of, of God working among his people and strengthening their bonds of love for one another. And then as the, as the later, as we read, the opposition really gets fiery as they are scattered throughout the world, the church grows. So the opposition creates for them a strong community, and a strong witness. So as we conclude today, let's just think about how we pray and what we pray for. I'm glad Ryan this morning kind of emphasized that. As we think about Missio Day and our mission to see to, to mature and multiply disciples in Asheville and beyond. I mean, that's not just a slogan, people. That's the mission. That mission comes from here. Jesus gave us this mission. So as we pray, let's come, to, come before a God recognizing that He is high and lifted up and he is sovereign and he is the master of the household. We come to this God and we pray biblically. We pray for the things that the Bible says we ought to be praying for. We pray with a biblical frame of mind 
And that includes opposition to our witness as, as believers. And then finally, we pray with the mission in mind. And when we pray that with the Holy Spirit, God's work gets done. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the book of Acts, and I thank you for the example of these young believers. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen the believers here in this room and in this place and those who are watching online. Lord, I pray that we would be strengthened to speak boldly, that we would think clearly and biblically. And Lord, I pray that you would work your will in us, that you would do extraordinary things. May we be privileged to be a part of that work. We pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen.